The passage we'll be hearing from this morning is in 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn there with me. If you do not, you can simply grab one of the ones that's in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. Uh, like I said, we'll be in uh, 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 through 14. Once you arrive there, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? 1 John chapter 2, 7 through 14 says this. Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know who who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. I have the sniffles a little bit. I apologize. Yes, I call them the sniffles. But uh, yeah, no, it's good to be here. Uh, Like Ty said, we're uh, going through 1 John. Uh, and um, just to, he explained a little bit of the theme, but it's a really unique book in the sense that as we walk through First John, um, there's kind of two things that happen. He's very black and white in this book. There's not a lot of gray areas. He uh, distinguishes pretty clearly in pretty much every text uh, who the believer is, those who are in Christ and walk in the light and what their life should look like, and those who are in darkness, not in Christ, and what their life inevitably looks like because of that, of not being in Christ. And so he paints this very black and white picture of what it looks like to be a believer or to not be a believer. Uh, And and I think this is good for us in a few different ways. I think one, it's good for us to look at this book because uh, we live in a culture where Christianity is loosely defined And it's kind of hard to tell where the line really stops and where it really starts, right? Because in the South, everyone's somewhat a Christian for the most part, unless you live in Austin, right? It's like everyone's kind of associated with the church somehow. uh, And it's kind of still like an honor, if you will, to be uh, involved somewhat as a Christian, right? Um, And it's the same way uh, in many cities, but definitely in the South, we we kind of see that in our area. Uh, So it's good for us to see, okay, it was some clear distinctions. What does it really look like to be a believer? It's helpful for us to define that. And I think the other reason it's good for us believers is that um, as we look and we see the evidence of what it looks like to be a believer and the promises that are held out to us in this book about what it means to a believer, there is an assurance that happens inside of our souls with the Lord that we know we are his and his forever. And this is also equally as important for us to look at and to have. Uh, And and so that's why we call this the anchored life of the people of God, because we are anchored into Christ. We believe wholeheartedly that um, we will make it to the end and be with Christ forever, not because of any good 
naturally inside of us, but because of God's love for us and his work inside of us that he will bring to completion. Uh, And that brings us much joy as we journey through this life, through the difficulties of sin and shame. So that's why I think it's really good to look at. Now, the text we have uh, is is kind of longer uh, for this. Uh, It really should be about two sermons within itself, but we're gonna crunch them into one sermon. I do think the theme ties together. Uh, I think we're gonna get the basis of this black and white narrative of the Christian versus the non-Christian, plus this foundation uh, of why we could, uh, I guess, fulfill what God is calling us to fulfill here. So these kind of do tie together. But basically, uh, last week we talked about God's love for us and the righteousness that that produces in our lives because we're forgiven of our sin. Therefore, we flee sin and live a righteous life. And this week, we're gonna kind of fade into uh, loving the command to love one another uh, and the basis or what that commandment is rooted in. Like how do we have the power to love one another and what does that look like? So that's what we're talking about today. Um, So I'd love to just pray as we dive into the book and then we'll kind of walk through verse by verse and and check out what God has for us. So uh, if you guys would bow your heads with me, let's pray together. Father, we uh, acknowledge right now that we, within ourselves, do not have the ability to be righteous. We don't have the ability to embody the true and everlasting love that you have shown to us unless by the power of your spirit and your forgiving grace, you work that in us and through us to other people. God, we confess that sometimes we are not a loving people like we ought to be. We confess that we are selfish that we find it hard to lay down our lives for other people and to live a life that is oriented uh, towards helping others and not just ourselves. God, we're selfish people. And God, we pray for your grace and help right now. I pray for the believer that is listening to this word, God, that you would strengthen their faith. God, that you would give them assurance that they are yours and they are cared for. And God, if someone might be listening that doesn't believe, I pray you would um, hold out your kingdom to them, your love to them, your gospel to them in such a way that the inevitable conclusion would be they would come in and God, they would uh, find you today. Uh, And so help us, Holy Spirit, to understand your word and to live it out, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so uh, let's kind of walk through, just like I said, verse by verse, just kind of want to expound on some of what he's saying here. Uh, And and really, um, I just want to acknowledge at the forefront that this commandment that God is talking about to love one another, okay, that's the basis of this commandment that John is talking about and God in his word is giving it to us today, uh, that this commandment and the application of this commandment in our lives are all based in God's love for us. And we're gonna get to this later in 1 John in chapter four, but he acknowledges that we love because God first loved us. And so God's love for us is the basis in which God calls us to these commandments to love one another. And that is important to understand at the outset as we kind of read through this text. So let's start uh, once again in verse seven. John starts off beloved. So he starts off those who are loved. Um, I am writing You, no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. And so 
John is giving us an old and new commandment. And what he means by that is there's this commandment, once the law was established, was that we were uh, called to, by God, to love the Lord God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Jesus confirms this, right? When Jesus is asked by the scribes and the Pharisees, what is the greatest commandment in all the scripture? And he says, it is to love the Lord God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus says that the whole law of God, everything God has called us to do, is summed up into two great commandments, and that is to love God and to love people. So those are the two things that he calls us to. So when John is saying, listen, this commandment is an old commandment, it's not gonna be like, whoa, I've never heard that before because they have heard it within the law for centuries. The people he is writing to most likely were aware that God has called his people since the time the law was established through Moses uh, to do this very thing, which is to love him and to love others like you would love yourself. And so that's why he says this is an old commandment. But he says in the same way, it's actually a new commandment. And what he's doing is he's actually quoting Jesus So Jesus says this in um, John 13, uh, verse 34 through 35. He says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so Jesus doesn't necessarily give a new commandment that's never been heard before, but he gives it in such a way, I think, that it is a new commandment. And I would kind of sum it up like this maybe. I would say this. Uh, This commandment, which has been enacted from the beginning of the law, is now clothed in new power through Jesus Christ and is being manifested through the church and the world as the darkness passes away and the light is shining. So what I mean by that is this commandment to love one another is given new strength, new power, in Jesus Christ because of the work of Jesus Christ in which he laid down his life for us, right? So as we see Jesus give his commandment to love one another, and he says, when you do that as Christians, when you love one another, the world is gonna see that you are my disciples. There's gonna be something distinctly different about you. That's why over and over again in the book of the Acts, people say things like, I could tell these men have been with Jesus, or these men turned the world upside down, right? It was their love for one another that caused that. And so this old commandment that John is giving us to love one another, which we would probably all agree with, it makes sense, right? The world had more love and people loved each other and didn't hate each other, the world would be a better place, right? Uh, this commandment is clothed in new power because Christ, even though we were undeserving and unfit to receive it, laid down his life for you and I that we might be invited into the kingdom of God as children of God and receive grace upon grace upon grace forever and forever, uh, and we're undeserving. So that perfect picture of love in Jesus Christ gives this commandment new power and new awe as we read it. And so that's why this is both old and new. He's not just kind of confused man writing this, but he's giving this distinction that Jesus brings with this some clarity. Uh, Dr. Daniel Aiken said this, he said, In Christ, the command to love one another is strengthened, deepened, expanded, and given a depth of meaning and understanding never seen before his coming in the incarnation. And so this commandment to love one another, as we look at the life of Christ, it is deepened, it is strengthened, it is magnified, if you will, uh, for us to see. But that is the commandment. The commandment is to love one another. He's about to get into that, and we'll kind of break down uh, what that means. But uh, John's 
old and new commandment is that we would love one another. Now he's gonna make a distinction about this love and what it looks like in people. And so let's look at verse nine. Here's what he says. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so John is giving us clear distinctions of what it looks like for the darkness and the light. So he kind of does this all throughout the book of John, right? He gives the distinction of darkness, which we talked about as non-believers and really the world and sin and Satan and then the light, which is the shining light of Christ, which us in Christ partake in. And so he says very clearly that if you hate your brother, you are in darkness. Or to word it another way, if you hate your brother, and it doesn't necessarily mean your actual sibling. I think that's, there's, some, there's some limit there how much you can love there. But it means generally anyone, right? Uh, so if you would hate someone, then you are not in Christ. That's what he means by you're in darkness. He doesn't just mean you're confused. He means you're not in Christ. There's a distinction here of the people of God. There's this equation that adds up to if you are in Christ, if the love of Christ has been poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit, like Romans 5 says, then the inevitable reaction to that is that you would love other people. Now, make no mistake, it's not a perfect love, right? Jesus has perfect love. We don't have a perfect love. We get impatient. We have sin that we're wrestling through. Thank God the text before that said we have an advocate Christ when we sin, right? If we say we're without sin, we're a liar. And when we do sin, Christ is readily and justly able to forgive us because of his sacrifice. But if we hate our brother, then the conclusion would be that, that we are not walking in the light. In fact, we are in darkness. In fact, we are not in Christ. And so this is a big deal, a big question for us to look at. It goes on to say that uh, if you're in the darkness, you walk in darkness in verse 11, which means that your manner of life is darkness and that you are blind. You can't even see. You don't even know where you're going. And so this, the, the crazy thing about being in darkness is that you don't even know you're there, right? You're blind. You don't know where you're going. You don't even know that you're in darkness. And so um, the picture here is that the, the, the person that doesn't know Christ cannot truly love I don't care how many romantic comedies you have seen and thought they were awesome. Uh, if you don't know Christ, you can't have true love for someone. And so your love life, not necessarily, you know, your spouse or whatever, but your love life in general with people is very telling to your Christianity. And that should be something that causes us to pause, to ponder, to consider um, what that looks like. And, and then the opposite is true, right? If you do love your brother, then you abide in the light. This is an awesome promise. If you have true, genuine, Christ-centered love for people, which is what drives all of our actions in, in, in relation to our relationships, right? Uh, if we have that Christ-centered love for people, then we can rest assured that we abide in the light. I love that, okay? There's something distinctly different about the love of the Christian. It doesn't mean that Christians are the best at going out and changing the world and doing good things because there's many nonprofits that are not Christian-based at all that do very wonderful things for this world. But there is a distinct love, a Christ-centered love, a love based in the gospel that we embody. And it is in that love that we find assurance that we are in the light, we are in Christ. 
And so John says, make no mistake, if you have meant the love of God, if you have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that we have in the gospel, the true love of God the Father, there will be an inevitable overflow from your heart of love to other people. It's going to happen. Now, like I said, it doesn't mean that some people won't be more difficult to love than others. It doesn't mean that your love will be perfect, but it does mean that it will be present and it will be growing and it will be Christ-like. And that's a distinction he makes and something that we should consider. Now, moving on from there um, and kind of asking that important question, I think it's also important, and this text is about to bring this out, and this is kind of what I want to rest for the rest of the time, which is... Um, John transitions now to give us a reminder both of the foundation of this love and this command and also the fuel of this kind of love and command. So John is about to give us the foundation and the fuel. What I mean by that is there is a basis, we talked about this at the beginning, right, into which we can say that we love, and this is quoting 1 John 4, because God first loved us. And so God's love for us is the basis in which we can truly love other people. And so if you're thinking, I don't know, I, I'm not really that loving. I don't really want to put myself in these categories here. It's re- really hard to kind of find. I, I just want to take a few minutes and go through these promises of God that we have in the scripture. And as we go through these promises, I beg you, um, it's so easy to gloss over things we've heard a thousand times, right? Like when we say, oh yes, my sins are forgiven. Sweet, I know that, right? Oh, I know God, sweet, yeah, whatever. And all these things we're about to mention, it's easy to gloss over them and not feel the weight of them. And it's just because naturally we're sinful, right? Naturally, we're just kind of prone to wonder a little bit. And so my, my prayer and my, my call for us this morning would be, let's just focus, listen in to the promises of God. And, and as we kind of hear God's love for us, I, I think that kind of brings some light to this kind of stuff and, and fuel to our love for others. It has to, because that's how God designed it. And so um, let's look at them. Uh, okay, so I got um, three, three promises that if we abide in the light, these things are true about us and they are ours in Christ Jesus, okay? Uh, and so let's go there. I, I do wanna acknowledge something before we go. So as you saw when we read, he addresses three people, right? He addresses little children, he addresses um, fathers, and he addresses young men, Okay, and so I just wanna acknowledge kind of what's going on here. There's a few different trains of thought. I think it's clear that he probably wasn't actually talking about physical ages. So he wasn't saying, okay, read this to the Sunday school, read this to the youth ministry, and then read this at big church. I don't think that's what was happening. Uh, But there's a few different beliefs. Some people believe that little children meant like young believers, like new believers. So like talk about like youngness and oldness and maturity. Okay, so new believers was little children. Uh, Semi-practice believers is young men, and then like the grandfathers of the faith that have been believers for a long time, those are uh, the fathers he's talking about. I don't think that's quite the way I did, just because he uses the word little children about five times in this letter alone, and then also in his other letters, he uses similar language of daughter and little children. So I, I would say, and I'm not a scholar, I'm not claiming to know this, this is kind of where I'm gonna go and why I'm not gonna focus on those too much, is I think little children kind of, he's talking to everyone, okay? I think when he says little children, uh, you, you saw John's language, he's just a compassionate guy for these people that he's writing to. So he's writing the church, he's calling them little children. And I think probably as he was writing, he's probably like, well, maybe I could address maybe the older believers and the younger believers where you get young men and fathers. But make no mistake, either way, that every promise we're about to read applies to men and women 
It applies to young and old. It applies to mature and immature, okay? Everyone is included in these promises, and that's why I'm gonna read them just the three promises and go through it that way instead of kind of going through who he's talking to, if that makes sense. So the point is he's writing to the church, and that's all we need to know. Let's look at the promises here. Um, The first one is that your sins are forgiven. Let's look at verse 12 and read that together. He says, I am writing to you. He's trying to convince them. Little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So the very sin that condemned you and me for all of eternity under the wrath of God, past, present sin, future sin that you will definitely commit, all of that sin has been wiped clean from the record book of God. That's huge. All of your sin, even your hidden sins that you're not even really sure are sins, right? The, the hidden evils of your heart that you know all too well, the, the, the rep, uh, I guess the, the repeated sins in your life that you can't seem to shake, right? All of these things are forgiven for the name of Jesus Christ. And this is held out to us today. So he says, I write to you little children, remember that your sins are forgiven. I love this. Um, Jaya Packer in, in a book uh, called Knowing God, he wrote this. He said, there is tremendous relief in knowing his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. I love that. He says, the knowledge of God about my whole life before I even existed and was created, him knowing every hidden evil of my heart, every sin I would commit, everything I've done wrong, it's all before him. He knows it all. And his love is utterly realistic in the sense that he knew the worst about us and still chose to die for us. And so he's never disillusioned. God is never trying to love us and forgive us. And all of a sudden, whoa, right? Didn't see that coming. God saw and sees everything and he still holds out unending, unrelenting, right? Uh, Love for us, not based on our merit, not based on our good deeds, not based on our ability to save ourselves, not based on our ability to memorize Bible verses. It's not based on anything you could possibly think of. It is based solely on the fact that God in his grace chose to love you and I for no good reason I can think of apart from his glory and his grace. And it's forgiven, it's free. This is a big deal, right? So the Bible says that his mercies are new every morning. This is why every single morning we wake up and we preach to ourselves that we are forgiven, that we are cared for, that today we can walk in newness of life, right? Because we are forgiven. And check this out. See how this plays into the command of God. We're forgiven in him, we're saved in him, we're loved in him, our sins have been blotted out, we are white as snow because Christ has taken our sin on his shoulders and now does it seem like a far jump to forgive others and love them in that way, right? That's why when Peter says, well, how many times, Jesus, should we forgive someone else that that sins against us? And Jesus says, well, 70 times seven, that's how many times. And before you try to do the math, which I am not good at, okay, he wasn't going for an exact number, So no tally marks here. He was saying every time, right? Every time someone sins against you, you forgive them. 
It probably doesn't mean you embracingly trust them all the time, but you forgive them, right? There's a love that flows from this. This is why Ephesians um, 4, 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul gives us this, uh, this, this foundation, right? Which is you be kind, you forgive one another because God in Christ forgave you. And every time we are tempted to hold a grudge, that scripture should just pop up to us, right? You've been forgiven for his namesake. You've been forgiven. The person that has been forgiven is gracious. That's why Jesus said, he who has been forgiven much loves much or forgives much, right? Because we've been forgiven much. So the more you know how sinful you are and were and how much you needed grace, the more you will be loving and forgiving to others because it's just a natural outflow, right? I mean, you've been forgiven, so you would do the same for other people. So that's a good connection there. The, the next is that you know the Father. You know the Father. Let's look at verse 13 and 14. He says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then down in verse 14, um, or sorry, at the end of 13 there and end of 14, it says, I write to you children because you know the father. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And so to, to know God is an unbelievable thing, right? Our sin separated us from that very thing, right? When Adam and Eve were in the garden, there was this, this unique knowingness of, of God, right? That, I mean, he was like walking around in the garden in the cool of the day, whatever that looks like, and they were able to talk with God and commune with him, right? And that communion was shattered as sin entered the world, right? It put a big rift, and so now communion looked different, right? It looked like killing a bunch of sheep for our sins and then maybe being able to go into his presence without dying if you were lucky. And then now in Christ, right, we've been brought into the family of God. And so now we know the Father. This is a unique thing. We actually know God. We get to know him and we grow in our knowledge of him. And we, through reading the word and prayer, the gifts that he's given us, what we call the spiritual disciplines, which Maybe a good word or a bad word, depending on how you look at it, but the, the means that God has given us to know him. This is a crazy honor. He is not some distant God that is up in the heavens that is just kind of fooling around with us and doing whatever he, he wants. He is doing whatever he pleases for sure in the heavens, but uh, he, he, he knows us. We're known by him and, and he allows us to know him. It's unbelievable. J.I. Packer in the same book, Knowing God, I figured I had to quote it for here, this one. Uh, he says this. He says, there is no peace like the peace of those whose minds are possessed with full assurance that they have known God and God has known them. And that this relationship guarantees God's favor to them in life, through death and on forever. There is no peace like being known by God and then loved by God and then being allowed to know God and know and be assured that we have known him, our father. We are rebellious children that are forced to put down our weapons, adopted back into the family of God, and we are loved by him as a good father, a great father, a perfect father who provides everything that we need and more for all eternity and loves us, amen? I mean, just think about that. I know there's a lot of probably distorted relationships between father and child in here, but generally to think of that perfect relationship with the father is just unbelievable. Or, or think of the prodigal son story, right? 
where, and there's a lot in this, and I won't get into the nuances, but the main point I'm trying to pull out is this son goes off and squanders his inheritance that was given by the father, right? And he ends up in this horrible situation and lots of sin and shame. And basically the only thing he can do is go back and beg his dad that he would at least let him be a servant in his house, right? And you know the story, he goes back and the father just sees him from afar and he runs to him, embraces him, hugs him, gives him the best coat of his father. She throws a huge feast for him, right? And this is the story, this is our story, rebellious. We ruined, we despised the birthright as Esau did, right? We ruined what God had given us in sin, in shame, condemned forever. But God in his grace embraces us, kisses us, hugs us as a father, gives us the best white robes of righteousness and throws a huge party for us in the marriage supper of the lamb and we will, we will be there forever. We get to know the father and this is huge. And because we have been invited into the family of God, we can now love our fellow brothers and sisters in a unique way, right? Because we know the Father and we share that knowing with other people, that produces in us a genuine, authentic kind of Christian love. Last thing is that you have overcome the evil one. So let's look at verse 13 the middle there, and then on at the end of 14. He says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So you have overcome, you are victorious over evil, over Satan, over the accuser, Right? And Court mentioned this a lot last week, and so I don't want to spend too much time on it, but he mentioned that uh, Satan, right, Satan's kind of gig, if you will, is he accuses, right? He accuses the brethren, is what the Bible says. He accuses those in the faith, right? Um, there is a, a, a slew of things he could throw about us about our unworthiness to be called children of God, our unworthiness to have our sins forgiven, right? But John here reminds us that, that we have overcome that. Okay, and I want to talk a little bit about what this means. Now, being an overcomer uh, doesn't mean that you'll get a Mercedes, okay? It's a, it's a disconnect there with some teaching that you might see on TV. But being an overcomer definitely means that by God's grace and through God's grace that we will overcome the evil one despite his accusations against us. They will not stand because we are strong and the word of God abides in us. Therefore, we overcome, Right? As, as the book of Revelation says, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, right? So there are two things mentioned here that God works on our behalf, uh, and that's God's work that he had done on our behalf and the word of God. And those are two things I wanna talk about here before we kind of get to the end here. So the first thing is you are strong. Now, not everyone is physically strong, okay? But you are strong in a different sense than muscles. We call them spiritual muscles, um, now this doesn't necessarily imply like an innate like spiritual strength we have within us like we're just naturally gifted at being awesome and fighting the devil off that's not what this implies but this implies rather the strength that Christ provides us in the work that he has done for us this is why the apostle Paul says things like when I am weak I am strong right we are strong in the work of Christ for us so think about this the life death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf is the lifeblood and the strength that we have in overcoming the evil one. 
It is not based on our ability not to sin. Most of the things that Satan would try to accuse us are at least half-truths, right? We are sinful. We are not worthy of God. We do fail, and we fail often and big time, right? But it is the basis of the gospel that is our strength, that Jesus died in our place. Our sins are forgiven. Our sins are cast into a sea of forgetfulness. They are no more because Christ absorbed them in his body on the cross. And so because of that, John here says, you are strong. There's a strength in believing the gospel that is unbelievable. So I want you to preach to yourself when you begin to doubt your standing in Christ Jesus, that you are strong in Christ Jesus. You're not strong by yourself because you'll fail often, but you are strong in Christ Jesus. We need to preach that to ourselves. And it is in that way in which we conquer the evil one. Now, number two is the word of God abides in you. And so because we have the word of God in us, it abides in us. Because we have the word of God, we overcome the evil one. Now, there's a lot of allusions here to if you look at Ephesians 6, like the armor of God. Um, and I wish I had time to go into all of that. But basically, uh, it talks about having the shield of faith, right? And these other things like the word of God and, and all this protection we have. And it says that we might extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. And so you get this picture that the enemy is shooting flaming darts at us, okay? Or flaming arrows, something like that, right? And it says that through Having the word of God, we're able to fight this. We're able to extinguish those attacks from the enemy, right? From the accuser that would accuse us. Uh, And so we have this as an anchor, which is the word of God. And this is why it's so important that we keep the word of God close to us, right? That we read the word of God. This is why I would promote daily reading of scripture because uh, we need the word of God is through the word of God, right? And through what Christ has done for us that we are conquerors, and as the Bible would say, even more than conquerors in Christ Jesus, right? And so you are strong. The word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. These are encouraging words. Now, it is in that um, promise that I would say, because we are conquerors over the evil one, that we can also help one another along in this same battle. We can love one another towards the end of love and, and good works, right? So why Hebrews 10 Uh, 24 and 25 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And so there's this unique way that we can love one another uh, and encouraging one another in these truths, right? And we're forgiven. We know the Father. No one can take that from us, right? And we conquer the evil one. There is no temptation, There is no accusation that will conquer us, but rather through Christ and his abiding word inside of us, we will conquer. And so when John says, here's this commandment, love one another. If you don't love, you don't have Christ. If you do love, you abide in Christ, you abide in the light and he is yours forever. And in case you were wondering, here's a foundation. You're forgiven, you know God, and you have conquered the evil one. So take that foundation and love one another. That's what John's given us today. And so my prayer and what I would like to pray is simply that that God would enable us 
to both be reflective of ourselves, because I think that's important. I think the word, and particularly this uh, book, is gonna continue to bring that up to say, let's ask the question, and I'm not wanting to cause any doubt, but am I in Christ? Do I love? Do I hate my brother? And then from there, let's pray, God, would you anchor us in this foundation? Would you anchor us in these truths that we have in the word of God that abides in us? And would you cause that, Lord Jesus, to overflow in a love for one another, a contagious love, right, that looks different, that's real. It's important. So let's pray for that together. Let's believe for that together as a church. I know it's early, but we need the Lord even more so, right, because it's early. So let's pray together, and uh, we will respond in song. Father, we are so blessed to know you, to be forgiven, to be loved, to be overcomers, and more than conquerors in you, Jesus Christ. God, the work that you've done for us is unbelievable, but we believe it because you have given us that belief. And God, we, we just confess right now that we're not perfect at loving one another, and oftentimes we're not even good at it. And <laughs> we just pray, God, that you would help us to walk in obedience because it is uh, your promises, your gospel, your work in us through your Holy Spirit that enables us to be obedient to what you've called us to do. And so God, help us to love one another. Help us to love like you have loved. May we respond in the same kindness that you showed us. God, the forgiveness, the ability for us to know you, helping us to overcome evil. God, would you help that to give us a rock solid foundation and anchor in who we are in you. God, give us assurance and let that assurance overflow into a wealth of love and generosity and kindness towards other people, even our enemies, like you called us to do. You even said to love our enemies and pray for those who despitefully use us. God, help us to embody that love. Help us to embody your love, the love of Christ that's been shown to us and displayed to us in the scriptures and has been poured out into our hearts. God, help us to overflow there. And as we said in the beginning, God, we just pray. Let the believer be assured and let the non-believer today be invited into an unbelievable unbelievable love and joy that you offer today. God, would you do your work through your spirit, through your people today. We pray this together and in faith and in Jesus' name.